Last time we talked, we finished talking about Dido's Descent into Madness, the very famous book four of Virgil's Aeneid. Today we're going to very briefly go over and outline what happened in book five because we're, we didn't really, we're not going to talk about that just like we didn't really talk about book 23 of the Iliad, very similar parallel books, obviously parallel books. And then we are going to get into the final book of the first half of the Aeneid, the so-called Odysseic half. Then uh, in our next lectures, our final lectures, we'll talk about book seven and book books eight and see the casus belli, the causes of war between the Latins and the Rutulians slap against the, uh, against the Trojans. And then we'll see some of the tragic parts of that war. We'll see a few people that we, don't, we won't really come to know very well die, but they will die tragically, and then we will see the ultimate outcome in book 12 of the battle between Turnus, our second Achilles, and Aeneas. Hmm. In any case, let's talk about book 5 just a little bit. Aeneas, finally after leaving book 4, and recall that he and his men at the very beginning of book 5 see a conflagration, conflagration in Carthage, a, a pyre, a fiery, a fire has been set. And again, they find themselves leaving a city that has fire there. So it's as if they're leaving where again? Troy. Troy. And they are leaving a place where something sad has happened. They are leaving a place where a woman has just died like Creusa. They are leaving a place where Aeneas had, in a way, another wife. This is his second wife. This is African wife. Who was this woman who died by her own hand because of the because of the decisions, both of herself, but also of Aeneas. Poor Dido. And we will see her again, sadly, down in um, the Fields of Mourning, in the Roman version of the underworld, not called Hades, but now called Pluto. It will sometimes be called, um, it will be called Orcus at times. We go through the jaws of Orcus to get down there. We will cross a lake called Avernus. Uh, or Aornos, which means against birds, because apparently it's so dense, and such poisonous fumes come off it, that when a bird tries to fly over it, it falls down into the water and dies, sadly. All right, but now we finally made it to where we were going, or to, we've made it back to the place we left from when we were hit by the storm in the very first book that sent us to Carthage. We had been at Sicily, which is where, which is right off the coast of Italy, which is where Anchises died, the father of Aeneas. Now we get back there a year later. So some students have asked, how long did Aeneas stay with Dido? Well, about how long? About a year. And so Dido is very much paralleled to whom in the Odyssey with whom Odysseus spent about a year, who was also a woman, who was also potentially a distraction from Odysseus's fate, yes? Circe, very good. And so Dido is considered something of a what? What is it we called uh, Circe? She was a sea what? A sea witch. And what is it that we said that Aeneas is, or excuse me, that Dido is a little bit of? Because we see her do a couple different instances of this sort of thing. We said she was like a witch. And who can recall the two instances of her doing witchy things? Or we can start with one. What's the first thing she does? Yeah, she tries to tell the future from animal guts, and that is as strange as it sounds. She literally cuts the entrails, the viscera, from, uh, from an animal. I, I can't recall, was it, was it a goat? Was it a cow? It was one of those. 
and and then tries to read the future from that. And then what else does she claim she is going to do, but does not actually do to Anna? She says that she is going to create some sort of love potion out of the pyre that will be her funeral pyre. And so we have a direct connection made between Dido and, unfortunately, Cersei, which is a favorable or somewhat unfavorable connection. Unfavorable because the thing that's so interesting about that is that we know Cersei turns men into what? Okay, I want to share with you a really interesting special connection. To call a person a pig in our day and age often means, we, we would say something like, you chauvinist pig. Pigs are associated not only with gluttony, but also with lust. We say that somebody is acting piggish if they are giving in to their animal appetites. And so if I look at book four very quickly, and this was a this was a quote that was drawn to my attention actually by a sophomore quoting this in her Dante's Divine Comedy paper. She remembered this. But rumor spreads a rumor, uh, line 250 or so to 258, which is very interesting because you can see here that Aeneas seems to have been turned into a pig. She sang of what was done and what was fiction. This is obviously rumor. Chanting that Aeneas, one born of Trojan blood, had come, that lovely Dido had deigned to join herself to him, that now in lust, forgetful of their kingdom, they take long pleasure, fondling through the winter, the slaves of squalid craving. It's very interesting. It is almost as if the lust shared between Dido and Aeneas has turned them both to what? To pigs. It's dehumanized them some extent. And so brilliant connection there by that student, brilliant connection by Virgil to uh, Homer. All right, good. So now we have the one year anniversary of Anchises' death, so it's time to celebrate. Just like in book 23 of the Iliad, we had funeral games for Patroclus. We will now have funeral games for Anchises, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but something about this is this is an epic trope. Just as Homer did this, a Virgil will attempt to do this better. The major, major race that occurred during the course of Book 23 in the Iliad was a chariot race. And there was a tragic fall to uh, one of the characters. His wheel gets snapped, and it's because of a prayer made to Athena, so she helps him out. Well, in this case, we're actually going to have a ship race between people. And uh, the ships have very interesting names. One's named Centaur, one is named Shark, one is named Scylla. And I always forget what the name of the fourth one is, but... It, well, Chimera. Very good. It is Chimera. Very good. And so it's like boys clearly named these ships. And it's very dramatic, very dramatic. One of the ships gets stuck on a reef. One that was actually like way behind the others ends up winning. It's extremely dramatic. We even have an archery contest where um, it's very interesting. The dove is attached to a string at the top of a mast on the ship. And the archers have to shoot that. Would that be a hard shot? Yeah. Well, one of them accidentally, one just misses. One shoots the string, and the dove escapes, and then one of the guys actually nails... Uh, uh, this is interesting. It's Pandarus' brother, and he prays to Pandarus, which is funny. Remember, Pandarus is the traitor that restarted the war in Book 3 of the Iliad. He actually shoots the dove after it escapes. And then, I think it's Acestes, actually, the king of Sicily, who has the last shot, and he just shoots the arrow up because the, the competition is over, and it turns into a flame. It turns into a portent. Very interestingly. In any case... All of that is happening, and then Aeneas' son, Ascanius, with the other young men, they do a little march. They do a little dance in front of everybody. They pretend 
themselves to be the next generation of warriors. While this is happening, Juno sees that the Trojans seem to be having some luck. Fun! Oh, oh, but this is not a comedy. This is not a fun sort of book. This is a what sort of book? A tragic sort of epic. And so something terrible has to happen because these guys are having a good time. No, 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 Juno will not allow that. So she gets Iris to go down to the Trojan women and has them convinced. She says, man, you, you all have been on the road for how long? You've been on the sea for seven years? Well, how many different places have you tried to live? Oh, wow, in Thrace. Oh, wow, in Crete. Oh, wow, in Africa and Carthage. And now here... Wouldn't it be nice if you just stopped traveling around? Wouldn't it be nice if you just got to stay here? What do you think the women say? Yes. Yes, they're inflamed by madness. Well, how is it that they're going to stay? They still have all these ships. But what if they didn't have the ships? What couldn't they do? They couldn't leave. So they set fire to the ships. And the Aeneas and Ascanius come running, and the women are so ashamed that they will not even show their faces to Aeneas. They run away and hide in the beach, sort of like what? Like children. And this really rocks Aeneas. In fact, I have a little bookmark here if I were to read it. This is a moment where he doubts whether he can even go on. Uh, it's book 5, line 923, but battered by this bitter crisis, Father Aeneas, notice that he is now Father Aeneas because his father has recently died, um, back in book 3, now it's been a year, now was mulling mighty cares, this way and that within his breast, whether to settle the fields of Sicily, forgetful of the fates, or else to try for the Italian coast. And then, aged Nautis gives him an idea, and the idea is this, he says, not everybody is meant for glory, Aeneas. You're not traveling only with an expedition, expeditionary military force. You're also traveling with what? Old men, not fighting age. Women, children. Probably they don't want to what anymore? Travel or fight, and they won't even be much use in a fight. So give them the option. If they wish for glory, they can come with you. If they don't, they can stay with King Acestes, the Sicilians. Many of them choose that path. And so, then, we think we're out of hot water, but what happens at the end of each book in this Odysseic half of the Aeneid? Somebody dies. And so, we have the steersmen now of Aeneas. And we're called the steersmen. There's an old metaphor in ancient Greek philosophy that uh, the mind is the steersman of the ship of your body, and that the leader is the steersman of the ship of the state. And so this other figure of a father, of a guide, of a leader, not Aeneas' actual father, but the physical driver of his ship here, is overcome by sleep. There's sort of a poetic uh, drama between them. Sleep shows up, crouched, and Palinurus tries to escape him, but then sleep throws him over the edge. This is obviously symbolic for what happens. He falls asleep, he falls off the ship, which is very much connected to the idea of Odysseus falling asleep and his ship then going off course, saying that what can a leader never afford to do? What can a human never afford to give up? Their mind, or they'll get lost. Yes? 
It is very much like that. It is very much like that. Very dangerous situation to find yourself in. In any case, Palinurus then dies. Remember that in book two, we had poor Creusa die at the end. Book three, Anchises. Book four, Dido. And now book five, Palinurus. Let's see what happens in book six. All right, book six, finally. I gave a thesis last year suggesting this. And perhaps you can consider this as a way of looking at any underworld, whether it be in the Odyssey, here in the Aeneid, or in the Divine Comedy next year. That the underworld is actually a symbol for collective memory, the collective memory of a people, a tradition, and looking to the past to understand the future. And that makes a lot of sense. It's like the Cave of Wonders in Aladdin. You go to a place where all the treasures of the past are, that's their stories or their memories. You go and acquire them through an education so that you can make your own free decisions understanding how history works. Does that make sense? Well, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. It's almost as if whenever you are in, in school, you are actually in the what? The underworld, because you're surrounded by the what? You learn about the future or the past. Usually the past, and the past is full of what sort of people? Dead people, right? It's like you're surrounded by the dead whenever you're in an education. You say, that's weird, Mr. Schman. I say, look at all the art on the wall. Any of those people alive? Not at all. Not at all. Look it in your books. Any of those people alive? Not at all. Not even close. Not even close. And some of you say, well, they're, they're fictional characters. And I say, well, even the ones that were not fictional were dead. And even if they are fictional, would they still be dead 2,000 years later? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Aeneas then meets an oracle at Delos. Here is one of the most famous oracles. She is the Sibyl. In fact, if you read Harry Potter, you will see that one of the oracles of the school, Professor Trelawney, her first name is actually Sybil. Yes? She's not very good, but she is very good, too, if you read really closely. Oh, yeah. She's the one who gives the prophecy about the Chosen One that Voldemort uses to base his killing of Harry Potter's parents on. Yeah. It's a very interesting question. We'll have to think about, if we ever talk about that, whether that's fate or free will, or somebody thinking they have a fate and then using their free will. We'll talk about that quite a bit when we talk about Macbeth. We'll include talking about Oedipus, then, because you'll be prepared for that. In any case, we meet the Sybil. She prophesies. Just as Circe had told Odysseus that now Aeneas has to go to the underworld, a terrible place. It's just like going back to where? School. What an awful place to have to go. And that there he will see the future of Rome with his father. It's almost as if you have to go into the past in order to learn who you are, in order to pave your own what? Your own future. Exactly right. And what is it that Aeneas is going to have to learn? And this is a terrible thing to have to learn. That he is going to have to face a new Aeneas. Or excuse me, a new Achilles. Oh, can't believe I missed that one. He will have to fight a new Achilles. What is it we know about Achilles versus Trojans? He kills them. What do we know about Achilles? Achilles against Aeneas. He would have killed him had not Neptune Poseidon saved him. And so the fact that he's going to have to fight an Achilles again means he's going to have to do something insuperable. Something he was he is going to have to overcome an obstacle that he was incapable of overcoming. Years ago, yes? How similar are the two Achilles? How similar are the two Achilles? We'll soon see. And who the second Achilles truly is, is an open question, I'll say. Because on the one hand, we think it's the enemy of Aeneas. But perhaps it will be an internal enemy to Aeneas. Perhaps the second Achilles will not be somebody that Aeneas fights. Turnus is who we think it will be. Perhaps the second Achilles will be Aeneas himself. Perhaps he will have to fight his own rage in order not to become a second Achilles. 
Ah, ah. But there are some similarities between the person we will first think is Achilles Turnus and also Aeneas at the end of the Aeneid. In fact, the question I will ask you, one of the final questions, will be, who was the second Achilles? It sounds confusing now, but it will be clear then. But what a horrifying thing to hear. You have to fight this super warrior who no one could defeat again? Well, then he would have to be a who. Who is the person who first killed uh, Achilles? Paris. And what has Aeneas actually been called recently by Yarbus? A second what? So perhaps he will be the person that will kill Achilles as this second Paris. Potentially so. Can you see how much of a genius uh, uh, Virgil is for connecting all these ideas together? Incredible. In any case, we now have to find a very famous object in all mythology. It is the golden bow. It is the golden ticket into the underworld. And yes, Willy Wonka must directly have been referencing this because Willy Wonka's Charlie Factory, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka's factory that does become Charlie's afterwards, is itself very much a figure of the underworld. If you see the old movie with Gene Wilder, there's actually a psychedelic, you go on a ship down a river through a psychedelic dungeon into a, play, a new place that you do not understand, a land of imagination. Very interesting. It is itself an underworld. And so this is the entrance to this joins itself to a mythological tradition of things that only chosen people can wield. Because only a chosen person can pull this golden branch. And uh, it reminds me very much of an Arthurian legend. Uh, what is it that only the true king of England can pull from the stone? Who happens to be a very unworthy looking uh, squire. Excalibur. We think it's Excalibur. It's actually the sword and the stone. Excalibur in many uh, uh, myths is slightly different from the sword and the stone. The sword and the stone actually gets broken, and then Arthur has to go to the Lady of the Lake and receive Excalibur. What's interesting about that is when he throws it back, he's not supposed to look into the water, just like with Eno, just like with Eno and the veil. Interestingly enough, apparently Aeneas is this man chosen by fate. He gets the golden bow. He has the entrance ticket to the underworld. Let's go to the underworld. Virgil then gives an invocation to us, something we will often see uh, Dante do next year. I think he has 22 different times where he addresses the reader. It's called apostrophe. In any case, this invocation is an invocation to the dead gods to give accounts. Dis, Orcus, Hades, the gods of the dead, rather. Uh Not... Now, dead gods would be very interesting. I suppose that's what the titans are in this case. In any case, Dis is another name for where we're going. Uh, Orcus. We go through the jaws of Orcus. And also Hades. The first thing we see when we enter here is an interesting prefiguration of what we will see in Dante's Divine Comedy. Opposite from, say, a tree of life, we have here a tree of death. A tree of fantastic horrors. It's covered in all sorts of terrifying things. I would love to see, I'll probably do an art project with students in the future where I have them represent this tree to me. And if one of you makes a poster board like the ones we have all over the walls for me like this, I will give you boo extra credit. Because there's a Briarius, 50-headed, 100-armed monster there. A double Scylla. Ugh, that's like, what, 12 heads? Scylla was ugly enough as she was. Hydra, itself with many heads. And uh, Gerion, it should say. Gerion is the, has the face of a just man, the body of, it's either a reptile or a lion. There are garish swirls in Dante. Uh, we will ride on Gerion as Dante and as Virgil 
next year going down between spheres, or excuse me, circles seven and eight. And uh, I, it has a scorpion's tail, and so all the most terrible things you can possibly imagine are down here. And so it is like your mind, because where does, where do the most terrifying things in your life come from? Your own imagination, your own imagination. I've told you about the experiment, right, where you're supposed to just put your hand into a dark room and see what pops into your head. You should definitely try that. Try it with a bathroom somewhere without a window and see what pops into your head. Probably it or something scary like that. Which, it's funny because what is its power? It can become the thing you are most what? Afraid of. Exactly. Because it is fear that is the scariest thing. It is your own imagination that populates your mind with that which scares you most. And so we go down and we meet the charioteer of the dead men, or rather the ferryman of the dead, and his name is Charon. Charon is a psychopomp. That means a cinder or a, a cinder of the dead. That means he ferries souls from the world of the living to the world of the dead, very much like Hermes, Mercury. So he carries the souls across two rivers. Two rivers we will see again, actually, in Dante's Inferno, one of which will be, uh, one of which will be the river of hate, and one of it which will be a frozen river in which Lucifer finds himself. That is Cocytus, and the river of hate is Styx. In fact, there's a modern, sort of modern, a rock band named Styx. And as we cross this river, the first person we see is Palinurus, because he is the most recently dead, and this recalls to us who Odysseus first saw, who was so recently dead to him, the foolish man who fell off a roof named Elpenor. Very good. All right. We also see, as we are crossing this river, the three-headed guard of the underworld. I have a picture of him over there next to our door, because he guards our door as well, even if you didn't see him. His name is Cerberus. He's very famous, and one of Heracles' famous uh, um, 12 acts was to go down to the underworld and to bring Cerberus back up. And so... Sybil, apparently knowing this, this underworld, apparently having been there before, or uh, in some way having the knowledge necessary to be guide there, throws a honeyed cake to Cerberus. We will see a similar action take place in the Inferno next year, except for it will be mud that gets thrown in the face of Cerberus, or into the mouth. We see here also Minos, who we will see next year in the Inferno. He is the first king we know, the first king of Crete. It was because of uh, the Trojans' descent from him, just like all people the Greeks would have believed, or all Greek people descend, or all Greek uh, ethnic people having been descended from Minos, that Anchises thought that it was, in fact, Crete that was the ancestral home that they must all go to after going to the Delian Oracle. In any case, we see Minos here. We will soon see his brother Radamanthus, and they are known to be great judges because they are the first judges, the first kings of men. And we see Minos here doing what he did while he was alive, judging souls. We arrive at the general area, the first area of the underworld. We see already that this is a more sophisticated portrayal from, or than uh, uh, Homer's. Homer's, we just sort of crossed a river and then we made a sort of blood, honey, milk circle around ourselves, and then the souls appear. Here we actually go down in there. And we see the fields of mourning. And in the fields of mourning, we see women who have died by tragic fates. Pasiphae, that was Minos' wife. Uh, she had the Minotaur as her child. We see Phaedra, who was the stepmother of um, Theseus' son, Hippolytus, who accused him of having raped her when she tried to, when she tried to seduce him. And in fact, he, he, he died running from his father by getting caught behind his chariot in the Hippolytus. 
Um, we see Procris, who thought her husband was cheating on her, and so went out on a hunt following him. And when he saw some bushes move behind him, he shot them, and those bushes were actually who? Her, herself. We see Laudamia uh, as well, and then, of course, we see Dido. Dido, who very tragically died. Yes. Hmm. Just like with Ajax to Ulysses, or Aias the Greater to Ulysses, just as Aias refused to speak to Odysseus, so here does Aeneas see Dido, but this is the first time Aeneas has seen Dido in the underworld. He did not know that she had died, and so he cries, and he tearfully tries to ask her how it was that she came here, and whether she would forgive him, and she does not. She flees from him. She flees back towards Sakaius, who, it's funny, some students have asked, does Sakaius know what she did while she was still on earth? And to me, that's a bit unclear. If this were Dante's Inferno, the answer would be yes, because the shades can see the future once they are in the underworld, and so he would have been able to see that, but they can't see the present. In any case, he also sees the old Dardan, that's uh, the Trojan, and Achaean chiefs, including Agamemnon. When Agamemnon sees Aeneas, he trembles and runs, as if he's still afraid of him, as if he were ever afraid of him. Very interesting uh, moment here. And then we see the mangled Deiphobos, and he is messed up. Recall, Deiphobos is the third husband of whom? Helen, yes. There was first, who was the first one? He was a Kean, the Spartan king, Menelaus, who was the second one? Paris. And then after Paris dies, Deiphobos is given Helen. Deiphobos is still the husband of Helen when the Achaeans sacked Troy. And so, they take out all their vitriol on him. Menelaus has his ears cut off, his nose, his face ripped off, his hands, I don't think his feet, his genitals, of course. That's how he appears in the underworld. In fact, with his stumpy hands, he tries to cover his lack of face. And the Trojans see him for what he is. It's almost as if he is himself a symbol for what itself? Something that has been dissembled and malformed. That was once beautiful. Troy itself. Very good. Troy itself. Yes. In fact, when we read Macbeth next year, I will, I will make the connection between the fact that Macbeth cuts in half the traitor MacDonald and the fact that he had tried to cut the Scottish state in half. Very interesting symbol there. In any case, we see Deiphobos, and we see the road divide, and this is where we'll have to end for today before we get on to our excursion into Roman history. The road divides into Elysium. That is the Roman version of heaven, where the groves of blessedness are, where those who are rewarded for good lives are, where those who are rewarded attempt to expurgate the sins of their lives and their material connections. And if they don't do so in a thousand years, they have to go back down and be reincarnated in, on earth. But if they do, they get to stay there forever. Nice. There's also another place, which is misspelled up there, but should say Tartarus. Tartarus is the Greek and Roman version of hell. It's where the Titans are. It's also where we saw, does anybody recall the three people who were being punished in the Odyssey's underworld? Guy moving a rock. Sisyphus, guy getting his liver eaten by two vultures. Tidious, and a guy who wanted to eat and drink and had food and water so close to him but could never get either of them. His name was Tantalus. 
Yes. We look down into... We also see a guy named Ixion down there. And he's uh, tethered to a burning and uh, rotating wheel. So he's forever, forever sick and being uh, burned alive, though dead. And so we see Hell, Tartarus. We see Heaven, Elysium. We have to make a choice. Which one do we want to go to? Definitely not Tartarus. Let's go up to Elysium because there in Elysium we will meet again, though he is dead, Anchises. Where's the only place you can meet Anchises at this point because he is dead? In your own memory. Very good. We will continue this when we continue this.